0: Good morning. Great to actually see your faces. It's uh, nice to see you are smiling sometimes, which is uh, which is helpful. You can see the crinkling of the eye in the past, but uh, good to see you. We'll probably have a COVID outbreak in two weeks' time. We'll see what when... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what, uh, what happens. Um, but uh, how about we pray? We're, we're dealing with something very very significant and wonderful as we gather. So let me pray for us, Heavenly Father. We we come before you uh, conscious that. Resting with your word is such a profound and important activity and we pray for your help in that uh, please help me to speak what is true uh, please help us to listen and engage with what you've said but we do ask for something particularly special this morning that as we've as we've sung as we've prayed as we've talked as we've baptized but as we now read your word and dig into it that you might move amongst us in profound ways that you might open our hearts to see the truth that you might change and transform us uh, to be people who live in the light of the truth. And we ask for something wonderful, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been uh, wrestling with the Bible for about 40 years. uh, And uh, John's Gospel I've been reading on and off for most of that time, of course, as you keep working your way through the Bible. Um, And so as we come to this kind of time, we're looking at John chapter 6. And it's a part of the Bible uh, I've been very familiar with, and I dare say many of you have as well. What's mentioned here in John chapter 6 Uh, A a couple of incidents that people actually are quite familiar with, even though they don't go to church. We'll see how that's the case in a moment. Uh, But as I've been kind of moving towards this weekend, this last week, a couple of things happened that have sort of sent me on a path in engaging with this text that's a little bit different. And uh, the two events are the war and a song. The war, uh, it, um, uh, like me, uh, surely Ukraine is disturbing us, yes, the The whole thing that's happening uh, is quite uh, dreadful, uh, terrifying, remarkable, horrible. How is it that uh, powerful rulers can just walk into other countries and do what they're doing? For for my generation, for generations younger than me, this is effectively the first time we've seen a superpower do this kind of thing. We've seen other things, Afghanistan and the Balkans and so on. But um, this particular thing is, is somewhat unique and it does feel very much... Uh, triggering world warish feel about it. I, I, am I right? There's something quite remarkable happening and dreadful. And so you're left, you're left looking at that um, and aren't many of us going, where is God? Do you There's no world ruler, it seems to us, that can step in and do anything. They're, they're helpless. They're um, seemingly just able to stand on the sidelines where this horror occurs. But where's God? He has the power. Why isn't he stepping in? Haven't you had some of those kinds of questions? This is years ahead of us now where there'll be um, dreadful suffering for these people. And, and where's God? The war. The second thing that's happened to me this week that's sort of spun me in this direction is a song. A new song that's been put out recently by uh, a young singer-songwriter in Sydney. Actually, a, a young woman who seems to me to be very talented, uh, very clever with what she's doing. But this is a song that um, focuses on God. In fact, it's called God is a Freak which triggered my interest. And so I I did chase it up and uh, find out a little bit more about it. And and now she wrote this song before the events this last week, but it's focused on what she perceives to be um, a God who is out of touch with bad priorities. And so it begins with this. the, the, The song starts, I heard my dad pray over a football game. I guess God had time that day. So reflecting on, God's listening to a dad pray about a football game and seeking to answer his prayers there. But then the next sentence here's a warning, it gets heavy very quickly. Um, she talks about how that same God just watches as she gets sexually abused. And she's wrestling with this thing of, what's with this God who seems to be so attached to middle-aged, middle-class men and their football but stands idly by watching terrible abuses occur in our world. What is it with this God? The song continues in something of the same kind of refrain about God hating certain people he's created. And it ends with her saying, why would I want to spend eternity with him when he's such a freak? Now, she herself says the song was a bit of a flippant make fun of God thing. But it's gone viral. And it's gone viral because... Thousands of uh, young men and women, but particularly women, I think, are seeing it as a way to express their own feelings about the world and the God who seems to be absent. Where it, why is he prioritising answering prayers about football games and parking spots, but absent when young women are being abused and so on? Uh, seemingly hostile for some small infringements they would regard and yet not hostile when dreadful. Where, Where is God? Now, you know, there's much to engage with the song in terms of problems. But there is a cry of the heart that is surely appropriate, isn't there? There's a cry of the heart that looks at the world and says, where are you? Have you not had that cry Has there not been an ache in your heart to see evil triumph, horrors happen, seemingly middle-class churches, successful and wonderful, and God seems to be all in their lives, but what about the people who are being crushed and oppressed, racism, sexism? Where is he then? Haven't you felt that cry, that ache? If you haven't, I want to encourage you to actually lift your sights, look around. Don't live in the bubble. The world is messed up. No one has the power to fix it. And God, the one with the power, seems absent. What is with that? Now, this, of course, isn't a new thought that a 25-year-old singer-songwriter has come up with. It's the same question that's been asked for thousands of years by any thoughtful person. People have always wrestled with the problem of evil and the seeming absence of God. Where is he in the world? Is he doing anything? More, is he someone you'd want to spend eternity with? When he seems such a freak, says this woman, is he someone you want to spend eternity with? Can I I say as strongly as possible, this is a genuine, appropriate cry, but there's an answer to it that, that changes everything, changes the way you see everything, changes the way you understand the world we're in, changes the way you see yourself. But we've got to get there with some care. You know, this uh, part of the Bible, the whole Bible is written to answer these kinds of things, and John chapter 6 can be seen through this same lens to help us appreciate who God really is, what he is doing in the world, why he seems absent, why is it the case that evil seems to triumph. This is a part of the Bible that can help us make sense of some of these things. And it's critical to realise this, if I can offer this thought, that this is the great power of the scriptures to give us an insight into the truth about who God is, that you cannot read off the world around us, that you can't just look around and work out. We are utterly dependent on God giving us his word on things, that we might see the truth, that we might be taken behind the curtain to see the depths, the deeper truths, the deeper realities that help us make sense of the circumstances of life that we're in. We are utterly dependent on God, bringing us in without that we're left with surface events unable to make sense of it all and that's John's gospel that's the book we're looking at you know remember how the book starts actually John chapter 1 with those astonishing words about the truth of God that in the beginning was the word that word was with God and yet the word was God this word is God was God with God the one through whom all things are created. But then verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that that very word of God, who is God, with God, creates God, becomes flesh. He becomes a man amongst us. He takes on humanity and dwells amongst us. John makes this astonishing claim after spending years with this Jesus, he and others, they were brought to see by God that Jesus is God made visible. So that we can now know God. Is he a freak? Is he worth spending eternity with? We can now know what he's about, what he's doing. In the midst of the confusion, uncertainty and conflicting experiences, we can go somewhere to find clarity. And that's what the Bible is for us. John chapter 6. I want to show you that this part of the Bible will help us make sense of some of these things. We've got to do a bit of digging. It's deep. Um, John chapter 6 is a record record of two particular... Well, it's a lot more than this, but it's two particular incidents in the life of Jesus uh, which are incredible miracles. Now, hold on to these big thoughts. Let's journey through John and come back to the big thoughts. It records for us two extraordinary miracles that are not called miracles. They're never called miracles in John's Gospel. They're called signs because they're not just about power. They point to something, the truth of who Jesus is. Those two miracles that I'm going to look at with you are the feeding of the 5,000... And Jesus walking on water. Now my guess is whether you've been to church or not, most of you will have, that'll trigger some memory. You will have heard of that language. These particular miracles are very, kind of, uh, sort of invaded our popular culture and popular thinking. Now they're not particularly difficult events to get our heads into. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time going through and retelling every detail. I'm going to rush through them now to get you some uh, sort of captured again chapter six let's go through the two of them sometime after this jesus crossed to the far shore of the sea of galilee that is the sea of tiberias now john's writing a long time after these events so the name of that body of waters changed name over time so he he's saying sea of galilee back but now come and i'll give you a quick map here and you can see where it is uh, the feeding of the five thousand occurs on the eastern side of the sea of galilee much higher than that up near the city of Bethsaida, actually town of Bethsaida, but um There is the geography of it. Um, Jesus goes over to to that side of the sea with his disciples to get away. We can drop that map down if you wouldn't mind. Um, And the great crowd of people, verse 2, followed him because they'd seen the signs that he'd been doing previously, healing the sick. Jesus went up on a mountainside, sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Then Jesus looked up, saw the great crowd coming towards him. and He said to Philip, "'Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat?' So he asks Philip. He doesn't uh, have an answer, particularly. Verse 7, it would take more than a half a year's wages because we're talking about, if you come down to verse 10, 5,000 men with women and children is probably 12,000 people. It's a massive crowd. But verse 8, another one of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up and answers. He's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how will they go amongst so many? Um, And so what Jesus does is he works to make it that that five loaves of bread and two small fish is able to feed the 10,000 people with, verse 13, 12 baskets full of bread left over. Now that is a head-shaking event. This is an extraordinary miracle. But then they leave that area. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into the boat, set off. They've left Jesus behind. But a strong wind comes up, the waters grow rough. When they had rowed out about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on water. He says to them, they're frightened, they're terrified. He says to them, it is I, don't be afraid, which I'm sure would have helped. And then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading again head shaking two events on any reckoning are unique. Who has ever seen either of these things kind of things happen? Do you know i've seen my wife pull together a meal at short notice you know i 've come home after church and Said, "Do you remember how I talked to you about the forty people who were coming around for lunch?" <laughs> and she said, "I don't remember, but I'm very glad you've told me now." <laughs> and uh, and she's been able to whip together a meal and feed dozens of people, and with, of course, my very competent help. Um, this is not what this is. This is this is not how do you feed a family on a budget. That there is more left over than there ever was to start with. And Jesus makes the point of that. He, verse 12 gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces in the fire. He makes a point of ga- getting them to gather it up to show them not just did we feed everybody with five loaves of bread, but we had 12 baskets more than we ever had before. This is a miracle. Now, it is an astonishing thing, but not unheard of in Israel's history. Their ancient forebears, the Jewish people, the, Israelite, the, the Jewish nation, had had a miraculous feeding experience in their past, in the wilderness, after an event called the Passover. Passover. You might remember it's recorded for us in the book of Exodus. Ellie read it for us. Where there'd been an astonishing rescue of God, of his people out from under slavery and oppression, through the Passover, where God's judgment passed over all of those people who relied on the blood of a lamb. God's judgment passed over and then brought that rescued people out to safety through the wilderness and fed them miraculously Bread from heaven in the wilderness. And there was another kind of feeding of a similar kind. One of their great prophets, Elisha, had been used by God to feed a crowd of people with food left over, 2 Kings chapter 4. There was a couple of episodes that are like this. The walking on water, that's brand new. Only God walks on water, Job chapter 9. Now, I underline all of this, that we are talking about miracles, which are totally unexplainable by science. We need to own this is the case. They are complete bending all the rules of science. You don't start with five loads, feed 10,000 people and have 12 more left over. You don't do that. You don't walk on water unless it's for a few seconds and then you sink, (laughs) What is this event? Well, here it is. It's about God, who he is, what he's like and how he's worth living eternity with. And it explains the world we're in. But to get there, we need to do some digging. Let me give you, on the way there, a word about the reliability of these witnesses. Because as you hear all of this and the extraordinary miracle, who doesn't feel the pull of scepticism? Really? Isn't this just fiction? Didn't someone, John, make this up many centuries later to kind of bolster the strength of the white man church and give it its power and so on? Weren't these accounts, don't you feel that kind of scepticism? Did this really happen? Did really someone feed and what? Well, given that's the case, I want us to see some of the evidences here for its reliability that you can trust it because if you can't trust it, everything's undermined. Let me dig for a moment there. Have a look with me there at verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, we've got this same account recorded for us in three other Gospels. So every, all the four Gospels record this event, the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew, Mark, Luke, each talk about this same event. John, many decades later than these other reporters, talks about the same event. Um, And in the other accounts of this event, we're just told that Jesus talks to the disciples. But here, John names the disciples that he particularly refers to. He talks to Philip, asks him the question, verse 8, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, answers with a question about the five loaves and the fish. Why does Jesus ask Philip and why does Andrew answer? John makes nothing of it. He just says, Jesus asked Philip and Andrew answers the question. Um, It's just Now could it be he's making the story up and he wants to give it a bit more flesh to make it a bit more lively. So he he just gives some names to the people who have the conversation. Could it be that? Well, I want you to notice one of the other accounts. Come with me to Luke. Luke's account of the same episode. Come with me to Luke chapter 9. Verse ten. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. They took them with then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So what we find is that this. Incident, the feeding of the 5,000, happens in a town called Bethsaida. That's why I suggested the map should have that feeding a bit further up. It happens in the town of Bethsaida. Now, Luke doesn't make anything of it. It's just an incidental bit of information he drops into his account. Nothing happens, just the town of Bethsaida. But come with me to John chapter 1. It's much easier to do in a book, isn't it, than a phone? Do you find that? Come with me to John 1. Look at verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Now, John doesn't make anything of it. He just tells us a bit of information. They they lived in the town of Bethsaida. You come to John 6... Why does Jesus ask Philip if there's anywhere to find bread for these thousands of people? Because he lives there. He's from Bethsaida. Why does Simon, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, speak up? Because he lives there as well. If there's anyone who could know the answer, if there's anyone who ends up with knowledge about... It's those two. Now, none of the writers make anything of this, but the point I'm making for us is you cannot possibly create this fiction. How do you write four different accounts, two at least independent of each other, many decades apart from different authors, and fill in the details that entirely match and dovetail it together like this? You don't. You can't write it centuries later. What What we have is first-hand reporting by eyewitnesses of an event they saw and they're still astonished by John was there and he gives you details that just he knew because he was there what do we therefore do with this true account if it's true what does it say about Jesus well what does it say It says that this isn't just any act of power. This is a highly intentional, significant work by Jesus, the man of power. It is a sign. He asks Philip, we're told, but verse 6 only asks him to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus had already determined what he was planning to do with this group of people. He's just asking Philip to begin the conversation and test him. He's about to reveal something, signify something about himself. And in hindsight, John helps us see the significance of this event by verse 4. Look at verse 4. John tells us the Jewish Passover festival was near. Why? Because John is now alert to the fact that all of this that's happening is tied in with that experience of the Passover it's connected with that previous great feeding around the Passover. When God fed them manna from heaven. You see, we're told by John that they're in the wilderness. Verse 3 is, a, is the mountainous area, is the Greek word there. It's not just a mountain side; it's the mountainous area. They're in the wilderness, the same kind of place they were in, back in the original Passover. They're made to sit in groups. Jesus feeds them food from heaven. And there's not just a little left over like there was with Elisha in 1 Kings, uh, 2 Kings 4, but there are baskets and baskets left over. This is a miracle that's gone beyond anything they've ever experienced in their history. They get this. The crowds get this. Their reaction is, verse 14, to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, why do they say that? Because Moses, back in the Exodus and the Passover, after all of that feeding in the wilderness, after that great rescue event, said to them at the end of it all, Deuteronomy chapter 18, one day there'll be another one like me come, another great prophet who will lead you. Listen to him. And the Israelites, the Jewish people, had been waiting and waiting. And here they are, in the wilderness, being fed from heaven by their great leader, teacher, and they join dots and say, here is the Deuteronomy 18 one we've been waiting for, the great prophet. Now, Jesus doesn't allow them to make him king. Now is not the time. Now is not the way. But they saw the significance, but not the fullest significance. They saw this was a sign that Jesus is the new Moses, true but not true enough there is much more happening still, come with me to later Jesus explains all of this to them look at verse 30 of chapter 6 they say to him, what sign then will you give us that we may see and believe you, what will you do our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, as it's written he gave them bread from heaven to eat, so they've joined the dots, Moses, manna Bread from heaven. But look what Jesus says in verse 32. Very truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. You see, it's not Moses. It's God who gives bread through Moses, if you like, back then. And this experience is not just another Moses giving you bread. It's God, the Father, giving you bread. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven that gives life. Sir, they say, give us this bread. And Jesus says, I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. You see, Moses was given by God to give bread through him. Jesus says, I am the bread. I'm not just another Moses through whom God works. I am the very bread God gives. And if you go back to chapter 5, do you remember that wonderful message we had last week about the person of Jesus? You go back to chapter 5 and what you find out, of course, is that Jesus sees himself as the one who's been granted to have life in himself. Like the Father has life in himself, God has granted him to have life in himself. He is the giver of life. He's the source of life, the bread of life. He's the one who can come and give you life. He is not just another Moses. He is bigger and far greater and glorious than Moses. He is God himself in the flesh. Come amongst us, not just a prophet. And more, the walking on water. It's a draw-dropping experience. But so is Jesus' word to them when it happens. Look at verse 20. Come back to chapter 6, verse 20. When he walks out on the water to them, verse 20, he says to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Now what's with that? Well, I'm going to give you some lessons on Hebrew and Greek. You ready for this? Let's see if the slide does this for us. Back in the Old Testament, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew, and in Exodus chapter three, Moses. Do you remember Moses? The, Mac, the Passover, the feeding of the, the feeding of the manna, and the rescue, and so on. Moses asks God, "What name should I tell the people?" And God says, he, gives, he says, my name is Yahweh, just the four letters. Now, how do you translate that cluster of four letters without the vowels in it? How do you tra- translate that? Because the word means existence. It means being. And so we've translated it as I am who I am. A little bit later, God says, tell them I am, send you with a slightly different set of letters, but Conveying the sense of being, I be, I exist, I am. And so we've translated with that language. When you come into the New Testament, you're talking Greek. Now, the little phrase that's used here by Jesus is the two Greek words there, ego, amy. The Greek word ego just means I, you know, egotistical, ego, I. Amy is the Greek word, it's the verb to Be. But who knows what that means? It's the verb "am," being, uh, was, will be, the verb to be. And in Greek, funny thing in Greek, lots of languages apart from English, you can just say "Amy." And if I tell you "Amy," you're saying "I am" because the pronoun the "I" is caught up in the verb "I am." But what the Greek does here is it goes "I," "I am." So it adds the ego in the front of it to emphasise I, I am, you see. Now, there's your lesson. Here's the thing. People can just use Ego Amy to say I am, I, I am. It's me. So it is I is a good translation. In fact, you'll get a blind man later in the chapters who uses the same phrase. But come to chapter 9, chapter 8, the end of chapter 8. Verse 58, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, ego amy, I am. Not I am something, just I am. Before Abraham was born, we're talking thousands of years before, Jesus is speaking, a man who's been dead for thousands of years. Jesus says before he was, I am. Now, what's he saying there? He is now alluding to the name of God. I am. I'm the great I am. Come back to John chapter 6. Jesus is walking on water, as only God does. Job chapter 9. And they are frightened and he says, I am. Don't be afraid. And they're going, we're more terrified. (laughs) Now, is he saying, I am, I am God? Maybe not. Maybe he's just saying, it is I. But it's hard not to see him doing it, walking on water and drawing on the hint, you wait, you read another couple of chapters and you will see what I mean by these words. Jesus takes on the very name of God as his own. Extraordinary. It was God who rescued the people of Israel in the first Passover from slavery and oppression. And he revealed himself to them as the great I am, the one who is life in himself, who is existence, who depends on no one, who gives life to others. And here comes Jesus, feeding them in the wilderness, bread from heaven, like the great prophet who says he is the bread who feeds, he is life in himself. Just as God has life, I have life. And more, he walks on water as only God does and says, don't be afraid, I am. Can you see where this is heading? Now, John, this was his journey. It's mind-blowing. The mind-shaking truths that he went through. It's why the reliability of this passage matters so much to us. It's why the reliability of the whole Bible matters to us. Because if this is true, everything hangs on it. You see, if this is true, this is the most important truth you can ever come to terms with, who Jesus is. If it is true, it is the greatest truth humanity can ever face, who Jesus is. God is real, he has come to us, he is life, he is good, he is gracious, he wants to give you life, he is the source of life itself and he has entered into our world to show himself to us as the good God who can bring life. And more, last thing. These events are saying something more than just who Jesus is. The Passover, Moses the feeding in the wilderness, even the walking on water, are connected to the Passover event. That is to say, they're part of a package that happened back then where God entered human history to rescue his people out from slavery and oppression, to save them, to bring them to himself, through the event of the passing over with the blood on the doorpost, through the event of um, feeding in the wilderness and guarding and protecting them and so on. The point... God has come again 2,000 years ago to work a new Passover, a new rescue, out from under slavery. Not just the slavery from out under the Egyptians, but out from the greatest slavery that humanity has ever faced, the slavery of death and sin and Satan. You know, this is how the Bible works. The Bible, the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, which is, you know, the first two-thirds, three-quarters of our book, the first part of the Bible gives to us um, scale models that help us get hints as to what the real thing will look like. It gives us shadows of the real thing when it will finally come. And the Old Testament Passover experience was a scale model, a shadow of the greater Passover, the true Passover, the real coming of God in the world, to rescue us, the great rescue. The Old Testament anticipates it, expects it, and speaks of another exodus to come, a greater exodus to come. And Jesus arrives on the planet and John says of him, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he's dying on the cross, John says, exactly as Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes the sin, exactly when he's dying was when they were slaughtering lambs for the Passover. He says in John 6, when this feeding happened, it was the time of the Passover. (laughs) Here is the great Passover we've been waiting for to come. To rescue us finally. Because Jesus will be crucified as the lamb that is slaughtered, whose blood makes it possible to deal with the root cause of everything that we're experiencing in life. Did you say... Sexual abuse, wars, oppression, racism, sexism, greed, death are all symptoms. They're symptoms of a greater disease. And that disease is our rebellion against the infinite majesty of a holy God. Which has spun us into death. And condemned us to live in sin with a world that gives all the evidence of it. And Jesus finally comes. God sends his son, comes as his son, to deal with that so that we might have life in the God who is life, who is gracious and good. You know, I started this morning with that song. And I think, you know, although the the young woman talks about it as a a flippant go at the God of many Christians... I think it's the ache of every honest person's heart. Where is God? How come he seems to answer the prayers of some people about parking spots and football games and their kids' sport? How come he seems to answer those prayers? But we're going to see thousands of people killed in a war. Where is he then? He is messed up. Isn't that the ache of every human's heart? If there is a God, where is he? Well, the Bible tells us this. He is good. He is gracious. He is giving. He's the one who comes into the world as one of us. He comes, empties himself and comes as a man, not just a glorious great man, but a a humble man, a man who lives in a place called Galilee of all places. He comes amongst us. And he shows good and grace and generosity. Everybody comes with power and greatness. But he comes into our world to be a servant and to give his life as the lamb who is slaughtered to give us forgiveness. To make it possible to deal with the root, the thing that causes everything. Our rebelliousness against the infinite, glorious majesty of God. He comes to deal with our deepest problem. So that when he does finally eradicate evil from the world, when he finally does come to get rid of all the symptoms of that evil, some of us will survive. Because here's the deal. Evil does not run between some people and others. It's not as if some people are, are, are separated onto the evil side and some people onto the good side. It's not as if Putin's over here and we're over here and if we were Putin, we, no, no, no. Evil runs through, as others have said, through the very heart of every human so that every one of us has evil in a heart. We are all like Putin. We're all caught up in the same. Given the opportunities and the power, and the, it's all there for all of us. Which therefore means when God comes to eradicate evil, if he doesn't deal with the root cause, we are all lost. And so he comes 2,000 years ago in this glorious person of his son to pay such a price, to give us evidence of himself that taps into the Old Testament to see I am here, I am good and gracious and generous and I've come to die to actually pay your penalty so you can be forgiven. Well, why don't you fix everything up? Because he's patient, not wanting anyone to perish. If God just ended everything, none of us would come to no relationship with himself. And so he's patient, bearing with us. Do you know, here's the thing. If you read off life from the circumstances of life, you'll draw the conclusion that God is absent, he is cruel, he's a freak... But if you see the world through the lens of the Bible, you will see a whole new way to understand it. God is not absent. He's patient. He's not absent. He's patient. Why does it carry on like it does? Because of his great goodness, his greater goodness, to give us all one more day to repent and find the blood of Jesus as the means of forgiveness for each of us. For our world to find forgiveness so that when he does end things, there will be some of us left. Do you know there's a, um, there was an ad years ago, no one's actually enlightened to me what it was about, but I remember years ago there was an ad that showed a small snippet of a particular experience of a man and an older woman. And in this experience, the young beefy man violently grabs the arm of the woman and pulls her. And you're left looking at this young man going, you brute. She looks at him angry and hurt. What are you doing to me, abusing me like this? And it looks very bad until you pull back. And the commercial pulls back and shows actually she's about to walk into the path of a truck. And so what looked like an abusive, angry young man was actually the goodness of a man to rescue someone. Do you see how the bigger perspective changes everything? That's what the Bible does for us. It gives you insight into the deeper, richer thing that you can't see by the superficiality of the world around us. The deeper thing is that God is not absent, heartless, but bears with patiently to see more people rescued. Through the event of Jesus entering our world to die and save us. The Bible talks about faith a lot. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Faith is choosing which thing to trust. Will you trust your read of circumstances and the words of a singer-songwriter about God? Or will you trust the reliable evidences of the Bible about the goodness of God who is doing something beyond our imagining, who is not absent, he is patient? Will you trust God's word Or will you let the reed of circumstances shape the way you think? Because, brothers and sisters, when you trust God's word, it means there's hope. We have hope. There's a future in the hands of a God I want to be in eternity with because he's not a freak. He is the great, glorious, good and gracious God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might help us appreciate the revelation you've given of yourself, that we might truly trust it, that we might look beneath the surface, please, and not be ruled by circumstances, by the, the whims and, and foolishness of people around us who, who fail to see the deeper. Th- please help us see what you've given us in the Scriptures. Help us trust your word and so find the hope that you intend, the life that you intend for us, the life that will go into eternity as we trust you, the great, glorious and good God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.